The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Read those chapters. I took time to do it again yesterday. Uh, after our time today, uh, it's not a very long section. It's a fascinating account, and I hope what we cover today will make some of those things even more clear. If you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to that section, we obviously won't be reading all of 6 through 9 this morning, but we will read uh, certain key passages that relate to the covenant. So think about it this way. If If you start with Adam and Eve at year zero, the flood itself comes about some 1,656 years after that. So it's maybe a longer period of time than you would think reading through Genesis 1 through 9. But um, the, the human race goes downhill pretty quickly. You know, you have the first murder between the first pair of brothers and Cain and Abel. But the setting of the Noahic covenant takes place in Genesis 6, 1 to 8. And we'll read those verses and then just make some comments about them. It came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Now, God's providence, we've already covered a couple of books that make reference to this, books in the New Testament that make reference back to this in Genesis 6. What's going on here? Who who are the sons of God? Is it it the fallen angels? So it is angels that abandon their proper abode and come down. Uh, These would be angels other than the ones that fell initially with Satan, but they would be angels that come down and take human wives for themselves and end up uh, the wives end up bearing offspring from those fallen angels and that's what the account continues to talk about remember david talked about our david covered this when we were going through both first peter and jude um first peter 318 says for christ also died for sins once for all the just for the unjust in order that he might bring us to god having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, in which, that is, Christ in his spirit, also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Well, who is that? Uh, And Peter goes on to tell us. Who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. I think that's a reference back to what's happening here in Genesis 6. Jude 1.6 says, <clears throat> And angels who do not keep their own domain but abandon their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, that is those cities, in the same way as these, that is those angels, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibiting as an example and undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now, that's not the only way that you can interpret these verses in Genesis 6, but it is an interpretation that uh, happens very early in church history. I think it's the only one that you can take personally because there's a clear contrast between the sons of God and the daughters of men and then the supernatural offspring, somewhat supernatural, uh, that occurs because of that. Now, I know there's other issues, you know, angels don't reproduce and those kind of things, and we, we won't try to deal with that this morning, but just be aware that that's what he's making reference to. And in this context, even though the human race is already on the decline, 
the fact that these angels uh, did what they did helped speed that process along, and that's what's going to contribute to the fact that God needs to judge the world, the whole world, save Noah and his family and the folks on the ark, uh, because of the sinfulness of the entire creation. That's a little bit of an aside, but I feel like we wanted to make reference to that just because we've already covered a couple of those passages in the New Testament. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. What does that mean? Does that mean that the average lifespan of man is going to go down to 120 years? Isaiah, tell us. What does it mean? That they have 120 years longer to repent. That's right. That's exactly right. It's It's going to be 120 years from the point at which God says this before the flood comes. Noah's building that ark over the course of that time. Uh, again, I make that point because some people do take it as the, the lifespan of man's going to be reduced to 120 years. It doesn't really make sense. I mean, even by the time we get to the Psalms, the average lifespan of a man is three score and 10, or if by strength, 80 instead of 70. So I think in context here, the 120 years is the time that God is going to give man before he brings judgment. The Nephilim, Nephilim actually means fallen ones. It's a transliteration of a Hebrew term. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So again, there's a sense in which they had supernatural strength or at least angelic strength in addition to being human beings. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man that was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What a statement. I mean, we see that, again, as we're reading the flow from the initial fall of Adam and Eve up to this point, we see that wickedness is on the increase, and we see that these demons that bore children to human beings were uh, contributing towards that. And if that's a a profound statement, think about the next one. The Lord was sorry that he had made men on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Uh, So what he's basically going to do is is wipe the human race out, save Noah, and start over. In fact, it goes on to say, The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. The sense is regret. Uh, and that's a hard thing for us to understand. I mean, does God ever regret anything that he does? But how else can he communicate that to us? That, that he is grieved by the totality of the human depravity. And he does have to bring judgment to, again, to start over. Literally, to wipe the face of the earth clean and to start over. Now, Yes. I don't. Yeah, I don't think the text makes that clear. I think I just think the nature of the earth and of humanity in particular is so bad that it's going to take a complete wiping out. Obviously, he he saves some animals along with the human race in order to allow them to repopulate the earth. 
But I think the same thing is going to happen in the future judgment, right? We're going to see the essence of the Noahic covenant as God promises never to destroy the world again by flood, but there is a coming judgment by fire, and the whole creation is going to be consumed. So, so the animals are basically neutral. They're not, they're not accountable to God the way that man is, yeah, because they're not made in the image of God the way that man is. They were. And they fell with man, even though they're not <clears throat> spiritually held accountable because they don't have a soul. But they were part of the, the fall. When the, when, the, when the man fell, all of everything fell. So everything came under the curse, right? The curse, right? I, I would be careful to distinguish the fall of man as far as his being responsible, like you said, for bringing the curse. It wasn't like animals sinned against God no. because they don't do that. But they did uh, come under the curse because the whole creation was cursed. That's right. Verse 8, contrast, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So it almost sounds like he's the only one. You know, God does save uh, his wife and their three sons and their wives. But Noah's the one that stands out as finding favor in God's eyes by his righteousness. I mean, not perfect, obviously. That becomes really clear after the flood's over. But he was a man who walked with God. He sought to please God. And God's going to use him as a means of preserving the human race. So just again, the Noahic covenant comes within this context of the flood. Uh, Moses is going to go on to record after this the command to Noah to build the arks as the means by which they'll be saved through the flood. Yes. David, uh, the race of the giants. Well, the story of David and Goliath was Goliath, ah. the, and, and that race of giants. Yes. So I don't, I don't know if I could say conclusively that Goliath was in that race. Uh, I do think the Nephilim were on the earth again or, or down the road from, from this. That's a real mystery as to how, right, because all those folks are going to be destroyed in the flood. But that's what it says even him. Even here, I'm sorry. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. So <clears throat> I think it's fair to say that Goliath was a very unusual human being. I don't know that you can say from Scripture conclusively that he was part of the Nephilim. <clears throat> How so? Well, they, didn't, they weren't required to be righteous, so they could have continued the line of whatever the Nephilim is. Yeah, but I don't think there's any evidence that his sons were involved with this. Just that the only people on earth. Or his daughters, the actually. Are daughter also. From Noah. That's true. Um, but again, there's no evidence that the daughters that married, or the women that married Noah's sons, had also produced this offspring of the. You know the demons and and human beings. But that's the definition of the Nephilim. I think it is, by context. But somehow it, they had to come from that family, not necessarily Noah, but that family. Well, yeah, that's the mystery of how the Nephilim were on the land afterward. Theory, right? Am I correct in saying this that the demons indwelt males, 
and then affected the children and made them powerful and mighty and everything. And so they could once again indwell a man. They could have. Do it again. That's right. And again, we just don't have explicit account of that in Scripture. And I think it was either them indwelling men and impregnating women that way, or they're taking the form of a human being somehow. Uh, the appearances that we have of angels in the Bible, they appear as men. They're not able to reproduce themselves as, you know, making more angels. We're, we're just not told. We're not given a lot of detail here as to how it happened, but I think it's pretty clear as to what happened. Well, they did. That's what's unique about the virgin birth, that only God could do that. Well, he, he allowed it and to happen he here. Creates, yeah. But somehow he allowed it here, too, right? I mean, no, I, th- I don't think that. I think that they um, totally controlled men, and then they, you know, they, like they made demon possessed people very strong and uh, all kinds of stuff. <clears throat> they then indwelt offspring as well. And they were allowed because of the worship going on at the time. And it's not like people were innocent. They might have even wanted it. Well, it seems like, though, that they were the ones that initiated the, yeah. the sons of God in heaven. They looked upon the daughters of men, and, and they... And that's right. And again, I think what's clear that we can say is they contributed towards uh, the wickedness that humanity was already headed down, the trail of wickedness. Yeah, I think you can look at some other references that make it clear at least one way to understand it is is the strength. You know, David had mighty men that were capable. They weren't necessarily, they were leaders in his army and leaders among his people, but not necessarily political leaders. After the fall, uh, we can see from this account that wickedness grew greatly upon the earth to the point like we said, that God was sorry that he had made man. As a result, he determined out to blot out not only the human race, but animals, creeping things, and birds from the face of the earth, according to verse 7. In contrast to that, Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. God determined to spare Noah and his family to preserve them and the animal kingdom uh, in the ark. We, we know that there's no water creatures mentioned as being on the ark. That would have been very difficult to carry off. Plus, there's going to be plenty of water for them to be out there anyway. It's very likely that some of those water creatures died as well, uh, but we're not given detail about that in Scripture. All right, so let's look at another key passage here. This is in uh, verses 17 through 22 of this same chapter, chapter 6. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind shall come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible, 
and gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus God did according to all that God had, I'm sorry, thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Now, as you get down to uh, chapter 7, you see that we're actually uh, seven pairs of the clean animals that were brought up on the ark, but we classically in the story just see two of every kind. The clean animals are going to be offered, some of them, as sacrifices once they exit the ark. Now, this is not the actual covenant itself. It is the first mention of the covenant that God is going to make with Noah, and it's prediction of the covenant that will be established after the flood occurs. God's about to destroy the whole earth, but he assures Noah, his family, and two of every kind of animal will be preserved in the ark. <clears throat> All right. Next passage is chapter 8, verses 20 through 22. This is actually after the flood and after they exit the ark. How long was Noah on the ark? 40 days and 40 nights. No more than that. Okay, so that's a common uh, thing. I think a lot of people think it's 40 days, 40 nights. That is how long the rain came out of the heavens. Remember also the fountains of the great deep were opened up over that period of time. And the flood continued to rise over that period of time. But they were actually on the ark for a little more than a year. And the way that we know that is that the beginning of the flood uh, happens in chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month of the 17th day of the month, on the same day all the fountains of the great deep burst open, the floodgates of the sky were opened. And then when they get ready to exit the ark, this is in chapter 8, it came about in the 601st year, again, this is of Noah's life, in the first month, on the first of the month, the waters dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. And in the second month, in the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry, and God spoke to Noah, saying, go out of the ark. So full year, very different kind of year than had ever happened up to that point, and certainly has happened since. I mean... You didn't have seasons. Um, we're not sure what the sun was doing over this period of time, but the whole earth was covered with water. And God had, uh, you know, told Noah ahead of time to bring enough food to sustain himself and the animals over that period of time. Again, just fascinating account. But 8, 20 through 22, let's read that. This is after they've exited the ark. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. Now, had the original curse been lifted? No. This was a judgment on top of the curse that came with the fall of man back in Genesis 3. But he is saying here and assuring that he's never going to bring this kind of judgment by water at least, uh, as long as the earth remains. But, but we know that the curse was still there, and, of course, the results of the curse were still there. Man's heart still is evil continually. Uh, there is still physical death as a result of the curse. But never again I curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. He even says it here. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Now, again, we have to 
provide the caveat there that there is going to be a destruction by fire in the future, but this has to do with water. Remember, up to the point of the flood, it had never rained, right? We'll talk about that more in just a minute. But here's what he says, verse 22, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. And that's something we can verify today, right? Have you ever had a day where you woke up and the sun didn't rise? Or a day where in the evening it didn't go down? We have this same regularity that God promises after the flood and have had throughout all history. So again, this is not the actual covenant. This is a statement that God makes after Noah exits the ark. They'd been on their ark for, with the animals for a little more than a year. The floodwaters receded and they went out. Noah worshiped God by offering sacrifices of every clean bird and animal that they had brought upon the ark, and that's why they needed the extra pairs. In response, God promised that as long as the earth remained, there'd be this regular order of day and night and of seasons. And by that regular order, man would be able to plant and harvest without fear that another flood would destroy the earth. All right, that brings us now to the actual covenant passage in Genesis 9, beginning in verse 8. 8 through 17. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, the beasts of the earth with you, all, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. And I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a water, be a flood, to destroy the earth. Now, again, that's the whole earth. Obviously, we've had lots of floods since then, lots of local floods, and they've done a tremendous amount of damage. But the world has never again been destroyed by flood. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I'm making between me and you and every living creature that's with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Again, this is the actual covenant text. Three different groups are recipients of this covenant promise from God. Who are they? Three different groups. Okay, Noah and his descendants, which is all humanity, right? Not just his wife and sons and their wives, but every descendant after Noah goes redeemed or unredeemed. It's a promise to all humanity. Who else? The animals, all the living creatures that were with Noah on the ark. And then the earth itself since the whole earth was destroyed by the flood. So it's important to recognize that all three are parties, if you will, on the other side of the covenant from God. Again, this is a divine covenant. It's separate and different from the ones that we'll start looking at next week because it is made not with just Abraham and his descendants, but with all humanity. 
But there's no negotiating here. God just lays out what he's going to do. Notice that it's described as an everlasting covenant. Beirit olam is the word, the phrase in Hebrew. And again, even the, the term for everlasting can have some differences depending on context, but it's explained here as as long as the earth remains, everlasting in that sense, not beyond this present earth. We're going to see that the other covenants are also described as everlasting covenants and also have some of them have signs associated with them the way that this one does. The essence of the Noahic covenant is in verse 11 of chapter 9. I will establish my covenant with you in all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. Keep in mind that up until the point at which the rain began for the flood, and keep in mind also, and the, the New Testament helps us here, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He's building this ark out here for, over, for approximately 120 years, and people must think he's crazy, right? What are you doing? There's not This little mist that comes out of the ground is not going to overcome the earth. And he has opportunity through the object lesson of the ark to proclaim God's truth of coming judgment. And yet nobody else heeds. Nobody else is willing to come aboard the ark. Up until the flood, there had been no rainfall at all. Instead, a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground, according to the account in Genesis 2, Noah and his immediate descendants needed assurance that when clouds formed in the future and it started raining in the future, which it's going to do for, for, the, for the, all the near future, all the future period, that there's not going to be a, a flood again like this one. At least again, not one that's going to destroy the whole earth. God's role as the initiator and authority for the covenant is reasserted five different times in Genesis 9. Let me just read those verses again and just notice how often he says, I, I'm going to do this. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that's with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud. It shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. Never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and the ever living creature of all flesh that's on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that's on the earth. It's interesting. I mean, the way that the covenant sign in this case, the rainbow, is stated is just, it's just as if it is a reminder to God. Uh, not like he's going to forget, right? But there's, and we saw this even last week in our induction of the covenants. There were symbols or piles of rocks in some cases that just served as a reminder that, yes, there was a covenant made and this is the terms of the covenant. I think more than God, even though it doesn't say it this way, it's a reminder to us, right? It's a reminder to us of the covenant that God has made. Uh, and we, we don't see it every day, but we see it, and I, I trust that when you see it, you're re reminded of a couple of things. One, that God has promised that he'll never destroy the whole earth by flood again. And two, it's a reminder that he did do it once before, right? And to me, when I look at a rainbow now, I, 
I think about that a lot more than I did earlier in my Christian life. Again, it's a, it's a sign of his past judgment on the whole earth. It can even be a reminder of his coming judgment, even though it's going to be in a different form. So let's talk a little bit more about the sign of the covenant. Uh, we just read that passage again in 12 through 16. It is the rainbow. Uh, some people believe that, well, obviously the elements for that sign were already present, right? It's not like he had to make something new to form a rainbow. And some people think that a rainbow might have appeared before this, and he just now is investing it with a significance that it didn't have before. It's hard to prove either way in Scripture, but to me, I don't think the sign was there until after the flood was over. And again, it was a, a sign that was made or given for a reminder of the covenant. As a sign, it was a repeatable, visible phenomenon that serves to remind God of the covenant he had made with all the earth. And again, that's what the text says. Never destroy the earth again by flood. And again, it should remind us of a lot of things, really, or several at least. The wickedness of humanity, the fact that, uh, you know, less than 2,000 years in, the, the human race was so bad that God said, okay, enough. Uh, I'm going to wipe you out and start over. And he, he did do that. And again, we're at a point now where the human race is doing the same thing, right? There's a redeemed community within that human race, but the human race continues to get worse and worse. I think it's a strong argument against post-millennialism. Uh, the gospel is not dominating the world. I mean, if there's one thing that becomes clear in our missions moments is, yes, in one sense, the gospel has run all over the world, and there are people that have embraced the gospel. That is the power of the gospel. And, and every person that God has chosen will be saved. But in no sense is the gospel uh, taking over the world to the point that one day Christ will return to this world that's completely Christianized. That's what post-millennialism teaches, and it's, it's just not happening. New Testament doesn't anticipate it's going to happen that way even. So one of the things that we're going to see and it'll become even more clear next week is how the covenants are interrelated to each other. We talked about the fact that the Abrahamic covenant is the most foundational of all the covenants with Abraham and his descendants. The Noahic covenant precedes that. But they're all related and in the same way that James picks up on themes in chapter 1, that there's a foundation, the successive covenants in God's plan with the Israel pick up on the themes that are first established in the Abrahamic covenant. And I think that will become really clear as we work through them. But even the Noahic covenant has some connection in, the sense, in this sense. The certainty of later covenants between God and his people is rooted in the order of nature and the regular cycle of day and night, summer and winter, uh, seasons that are promised in the Noahic Covenant that we read in Genesis 8.22. I'll just read that again. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. So this is a reference by Jeremiah the prophet back to that order recording from the Lord what he says. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant. That's a reference to the Davidic covenant. 
that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levitical priest, my ministers. That's the priestly covenant that we'll get to in Numbers chapter 25. So the certainty of the seasons, the obvious answer to this is, no, that covenant can't be broken. And in the same way, God's saying, my covenant with David won't be broken, my covenant with the Levites as my ministers won't be broken either. That text comes shortly after the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. And again, we'll get to this more, we'll talk about it more when we get to Jeremiah 31. This is strong promises and covenant commitments to the nation of Israel that God will never forsake them despite their unfaithfulness through history, despite their unfaithfulness up to the present day. They're still God's chosen people, and they will ultimately fulfill the covenant role that he has for them. So, as you can probably tell, it really bothers me when people say that the church replaces Israel or that there's not some kind of separate program for Israel. There is. They've been through the curses for their disobedience that God said beforehand that they would go through. They're the ones that are going to get the blessings that God promised in those same covenants. The church doesn't um, supplant them in any way. The church has its own glory. It has its own blessings. But we don't replace Israel, and we're not the new Israel. One other reference, this is in Isaiah 54, uh, verse 9. For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah should not flood the earth again, so that I have sworn I will not be angry with you. And he's talking about with Israel. Nor will I rebuke you, for the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Obviously, the Lord has disciplined Israel because of their unfaithfulness through the years, and he told them he would do that up front, but he's not forsaken them. And, and that's affirmed in the New Testament as well, right, Romans 9 through 11. Okay. That's all for the Noahic covenant. Uh, next week we'll look at the Abrahamic covenant. I want to encourage you, well, two things. Uh, if you haven't already done so recently, just sit down and read Genesis 6 through 9 in one city. And then secondly, uh, the Abrahamic covenant we'll do in several parts. We won't be able to call, cover it all next week. But read Genesis 12 first and think about the context of Genesis 12, kind of the broader context the four major events that happen in Genesis 1 through 11 that set the stage for Genesis 12. Uh, we'll see that that's Genesis 12 and not the actual Abrahamic covenant, but it is the initial promises that God makes to Abraham that will be finalized later in the covenant ceremony. Any questions about anything that we covered today? I know we had some along the way, and that's good. All right, again. Don't forget your stars if you haven't done that. Let's have a word of prayer. No fundamentals of the faith tonight. And let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, we read this morning from Psalm 27 that you sat as king at the flood. And we recognize that you're king always over all of creation. It's incredible for us to think about the power that you have. First, to speak the creation into being simply by your spoken word and then to sustain it to bring a curse upon it when adam and eve fell uh, ultimately to wipe it out 
with the floodwaters and start over again. Uh, you are a God who is due reverence and worship for that kind of power. You are the only true God. We thank you for your word that makes that clear to us and that uh, reveals these kind of events and helps us to understand uh, proper perspective on them. We thank you for your grace and mercy towards us in that while we as a human race continue to rebel against you, um, you won't wipe us out the way that you did back in, in that time in Genesis. And yet at the same time, you tell us that there is a coming judgment on the world, a judgment by fire, even worse than flood, but then ultimately a new heavens and new earth for those who put their faith in Christ now and who embrace the, the salvation that you provided in Christ. Uh, thank you for, for opening our eyes to see the truth of the gospel, those that have embraced Christ here this morning. And pray for those that have not yet done that, Lord, that you would open their eyes to the truth of the gospel, to the need for salvation, to the recognition that things are not getting better and better in this life. Instead, there's coming a day of judgment and when the world will be destroyed by fire, but then a new heavens and new earth where there is no longer a curse. There's even no longer a need for a temple. Because, once again, you will dwell among men in the same kind of way that you did with Adam and Eve before the fall. And we will have uh, uh, new bodies that are free even from the presence of sin. And we will enjoy fellowship with you forever. Lord, we're, we're so grateful for those truths. And we pray that our lives would reflect that uh, even as we live them out today. We look forward to the return of Christ and all that accompanies that. We just pray that you'd help us to live faithfully uh, each day as we walk until either Christ returns or until we go to be with you through physical death. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.